Lord, as we come to your word, we are just beggars who need to be fed. And so we ask that you would use your word to nourish us, to strengthen us. We remember that your word is inerrant, that it is inspired and therefore profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for every good work. So use your word now, Lord, to accomplish your work in us. Conform us into Christ's likeness. Teach us to be more like him, and by the power of the Spirit within us, give us not only understanding, but conviction to act based on what your word instructs. All for the glory of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 56. Uh, This is going to be our final psalm, uh, I believe, that we'll be doing for at least several years. Um, Our next study is going to be in the Sermon on the Mount uh, on our first Sunday, uh, which we'll be starting next month. Uh, We've got three, maybe four, probably four uh, sermons left in uh, the Gospel of John. After that, we'll be starting 1st and 2nd Samuel again next month. Uh, But today we're going to be in Psalm 56, and this is a great one to end our, not really end, but to take a break in our study from the Psalms with, because this is a Psalm that is quoted several times, actually, uh, in the New Testament and uh, other places in the, uh, the Old Testament as well. Now, you might have noticed that the, the title of this sermon is, What Can Man Do to Me? That's a good question, right? That opens up a can of worms. It's a question that David is going to present to us as we continue in the Psalms today. In this particular Psalm, it's the question that he confronts us with. And if we're perfectly honest, uh, if somebody were to ask you that question, um, what, what can man do to you? I mean, the possibilities are kind of endless, aren't they? I mean, they can physically assault you. They can verbally assail you. Uh, they can speak falsely of you, and thereby they can turn people against you. They could even turn your friends and your, your family members against you. Uh, they can discriminate against you. They can steal from you. Uh, they can take your life from you. There's all kinds of wicked things, evil things that man can do to you. And when you're overloaded with headlines all the time that report these types of things happening to people constantly, it's easy for just the, the, the possibility, the potential for those things happening to us to be a source of fear and actually to become a great source of fear, as if we don't have enough reasons for fear in our lives already, right? I, I think that one of the things that we've seen um, through the COVID-19 years is that people in our area of the world are actually very easily overwhelmed by the fear of mere possibilities, even remote or slight possibilities. Uh, if you look at the statistics for how many Americans... Even Christian Americans are on like uh, anti-anxiety medications. You'll see that there's a fear epidemic in our culture that has been programmed into us. And some of them are, some of our fears are valid. Uh, some of them are not. Some fears are very rational. But 
anybody who has struggled with fear, as, as I have, knows that it's really easy to slip into uh, irrational fears, to go from having you know, rational fears, which uh, you know, are, are pretty normal, to having irrational fears, at which point you just need somebody to, to kind of hold on to you and you know, keep you from, from going too far. But how many of you know that the easiest way to control somebody or to, to be controlled is with fear? creating a sense of fear within somebody. And so with that said, how important do you think it is for us to have a biblical remedy for fear? I'd say it's really, really important. So I want to start off today by saying that there is a biblical remedy for fear. The Bible has a lot of things to say about fear, and considering the honesty and the transparency of the psalmists, uh, you know, the, the, the openness that they have with God and, and with us as we study the psalms, I'd say it's really no surprise that the psalms have a way of speaking to us when we're being confronted by or, perish the thought, controlled by fears. Uh, whether that's fear of the latest strain of the flu or fear of a collapsing economic uh, you know, ec- economy, which I think we'll probably see a bit of in the next couple of years, or fear of social unrest, kind of like what we saw uh, all over the place in 2020, or whatever, whatever causes us fear. Now, maybe some of you know what it's like, I do, to be overwhelmed by fear, and again, maybe your fears are rational, maybe your fears are irrational. Maybe they're more likely somewhere in the middle. But whatever the case may be, the psalm that we come to today, Psalm 56, speaks to us in a way that instructs us in how we as Christians should think about fear and deal with the reality of fear in our lives. If you struggle with fear... Listen, it is okay for you to be honest with yourself about that. You aren't the first Christian, you aren't the first child of God in history to have a struggle with fear. We know that David often faced uh, dangerous, difficult situations in which he also struggled with fear, uh, with, with great fear. Uh, but he also learned to deal with his fear in a way that honored God and also didn't stop him from living his life for the glory of God. And friends, you and I need to learn how to do the same thing. So the point of this psalm, the point of Psalm 56, is that whenever we find ourselves feeling fearful, We must learn to set our minds on what we know about God, His attributes, and we must remember His promises. Meditating on the attributes of God, praying the promises of God, these are things that have a way of breaking, completely incapacitating the power of fear over us. So we'll start by establishing the context in which this psalm was written which we find in the inscription, uh, which is really part of uh, verse 1. It's the first part of verse 1. In the NASB 1995 translation, it says, For the choir director, according to Jonath Elam Rehokim, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. 
Now, I I realize that sounds like quite a mouthful, like you need to sneeze or something, Uh, especially that second clause, according to Jonath Elam Rehokim. Now, if you're reading from the NIV or the ESV or the New King James, you'll see that it's actually somewhat translated or completely translated for you. It, It says, according to or to the tune of a dove on distant oaks or something like that, something very similar to that. So apparently that was the name of a song in David's time, and this was the the melody that this psalm was intended to be sung to, which reminds us once again that the psalms are meant to be sung. Uh, That's why Paul says that we should encourage one another by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Uh, We want to sing the psalms. Jesus sung the psalms. Uh, So why would we not also want to sing the Psalms? So next, uh, we're told that this is a miktam, miktam, however you want to pronounce that. That's basically saying that this is a song that will teach us how to be wise. Now if you think about it, if you've ever been paralyzed by fear, maybe you've had anxiety attacks or something like that, you know that wisdom is the furthest thing from you in those moments, especially when your fears are irrational. Wisdom is often far from us when we are just overwhelmed by fear. So that's important to know, that this is a a psalm that will teach us to be wise. The context is next established for us in the final clause there, which says that David wrote it, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Uh, This was a time in David's life when he was fleeing from King Saul. Um, Yes, we are going to be studying 1 and 2 Samuel, so we're going to come to this within probably the next year, year and a half. But in a nutshell, in 1 Samuel 21, we read of him fleeing to the city of Gath. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know... Uh, your geography and your characters in the Bible, you know that there's a very famous person from Gath named Goliath. Uh, Goliath, the giant who stood over nine feet tall, was from Gath. Now, you might remember uh, what happened with Goliath. Uh, Think about this for a second. David killed him in battle. He was Gath's hometown hero and Here comes David now, after killing Goliath, the hometown hero of Gath. Here comes David into Gath, uh, coming out of in a state of desperation and fear. Why did he take it upon himself? Why did he go into the city of Gath, which was risky to say the very least? It's because I mean there are two possibilities. It's because. David was either stupidly insane, or it's because he was desperately fearful. Uh, One of the things that we'll see in uh, Psalm 56 here is that David confesses and confronts his fear. So that tells us what the reason is. It's not because he was stupidly insane. No, David was scared for his life. He was afraid. He wouldn't have gone into Gath unless it was absolutely necessary unless it was his last absolute last option and there was no other way so upon entering the city gates he's taken right away by uh, the servants of the king uh, to see the king king Achish 
but as he did, he was immediately recognized as the man who had killed Goliath, the hometown hero, in battle. We read in 1 Samuel 21, verse 11, But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Now remember that Goliath is among those ten thousands. Also among those ten thousands, we can be sure there were other Philistines who were from Gath that David had killed in battle as well, undoubtedly. And so we read this in 1 Samuel 21, verse 12. David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. David's not just afraid, he is very afraid. And so David's only option was to play the the stupidly insane card, uh, pretending like he was just a complete lunatic so that King Achish would spare David's life. And what do you know, it, it, it worked. Uh, But the point is that David knew what it was like to face overwhelming fear. And this psalm was written out of that experience. Now you probably haven't had an experience like that where you've had to run from your life from a king who wanted to take your life. Uh, But the list of things that can fill us with fears that are, you know, as bad as David's, as great as David's fear... That list is essentially unlimited. And so even if you haven't had to run for your life the way that David did, if you know what it's like to feel very afraid, this psalm will instruct you and encourage you. Our experience, sure, we live in a totally different culture, and so our experience will be very different from David's, but we have the same God who has the same attributes. And thus we have the same remedy for dealing with our fear. So like many other psalms, uh, there's, there's a pattern that we're going to see in this psalm. David goes from, uh, from calling on God to uh, describing his problem, to turning to God, to describing his problem again, and then finally concludes with David turning his attention in conclusion back to God. Uh, David writes this in the first couple of verses after the inscription uh, in verses 1 and 2. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Notice here that David begins his prayer in the right place. He begins his prayer by appealing to God's grace. He says, be gracious to me, O God. Even though his situation is desperate, and even though David uh, has himself in a very fearful predicament, and even though we couldn't blame him if he just cut straight to the chase, he realizes that the only basis he has for approaching a holy and righteous God with a petition is by God's grace. David knows that even though he needs God to intervene ASAP, God doesn't owe David, God doesn't owe anyone anything. Aside from wrath, whatever we receive from God is by grace. And the fact is that God loves to give grace more than we love to ask for it. So, ask Him. And I am certain, and Scripture attests to the fact that He will be happy to oblige you. 
But here we see David illustrate a very important principle for us when we're dealing with fear, that being that we must learn to turn to God in faith when we're confronted by fear. And that shouldn't be our last option. It should be our first. David describes the adversity he's facing. He says, man has trampled him. They fight and oppress him all day long. Notice the repetition of these actions in verse 2. He can't find a way out. He can't find a way to escape. He can't get away. These men are fighting him. These men are attacking him every direction he turns. And they're not just doing it for a a couple hours a day. They're doing it all day long. It's constant. You and I, like David, need to know that when there's nowhere left to turn, we can always turn to God. We can always turn to God. These men, David's adversaries in Gath, They will show Him no mercy. But you know who will show Him mercy? God. God will show Him mercy. And every Christian can be sure that God will show mercy to us as well when we turn to Him in prayer. So maybe you can relate to David. Maybe you've been overwhelmed by fear before. He's overwhelmed by fear. You've been there, haven't you? You You can do what David has done here. You can turn to the Lord in prayer. This is the way to get to the remedy for fear. Tell God what your problems are. On the basis of His grace, ask Him to hear your prayer. Tell Him what your problems are. By the way, there used to be a saying that went something like this. uh, Don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big your God is. Something like that. Maybe you've heard it. I just want to start off by saying that's completely wrong. There is nothing biblical about that whatsoever. I, I get it. It sounds like you know, kind of a tough guy routine. Don't you know? Make make your problems. You know, realize how big your God is. No, don't talk to your problems because when you are talking to your problems, you know what you're doing. You're focusing your attention on your problems. The first step is to get your attention off of your problems and to talk to God. Don't talk to your problems. That puts your attention on your problems. Talk to God. Put your focus on God. That's where it starts. Putting our focus on God. Who He is. His attributes. What He's done. This is what makes our problems seem small. If you put your focus on your problems, your problems are going to feel big. No. Put your focus on the Lord. And tell him about your problems. David never tells his problems how big his God is. Tell God about your problems, just like David has. The mercy of God is what we can flee to. The mercy of God, the grace of God, is what we can trust. Get God in the middle of the situation that's causing you fear. What father would refuse to get involved when his children come to him with their fears? What what dad would say, I don't have time for you right now. I don't care how afraid you are. A pretty cold-hearted dad, that's not our God. No, he cares. And if we can enlist the aid of God himself, it doesn't matter if our enemies are 10 million strong. Bring your problems, bring your fears, bring your anxieties to God and cast them on him because he cares for you. But don't stop there. 
That's, that's just the beginning. Coming to God on the basis of His grace, on the basis of His mercy, telling Him what you're afraid of. That's, that's where it starts. But then what? What's David supposed to do next? Well, he knows what he's going to do next. He knows what he's supposed to do next. And I'd have to imagine that most of us probably know the answer too. But knowing the right answer intellectually and actually believing that the right answer is the remedy for the situation are, are two different things. David knows the answer. He knows what he needs to do next. And he believes that it's the remedy for this situation. So he writes out the answer for us in verses 3 and 4 in clear, explicit, very easy to understand language. He writes, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Now, if you were to translate verse 3 literally from the Hebrew, it would say, in the day when I am afraid. Which, if you think about it, it underscores the certainty that David has that days of fear will come. He doesn't say, if I am afraid. He says, when. When I am afraid, or in the day when I am afraid. You and I, like David, can be sure that there will be moments when we will be confronted by fear, at least potentially. And so it's good to know how to respond to those feelings of fear ahead of time. Maybe you're not feeling afraid today, but this is a great thing to have in your back pocket at all times. So the next step, as David shows us, it's kind of twofold as he breaks it down. First of all, it involves having supreme confidence in God. Trusting in God. This is where it becomes very important that you actually know who God is. This is where it becomes very, very important that you worship the one true living God rather than a God of your own design, a custom God that is really uh, just a God of your imagination, an idol. See, when you're afraid, or when you're confused, or when you're anxious, you're going to fall back on what you believe and what you understand about God. So you'd better make sure that your God is the real God because if you're just worshiping a God of your own imagination, there's nothing to catch you. There's nothing to catch you. So where do you learn about God? Where do you learn about His attributes? Where do you learn about what He's done and what He can do and what He is going to do? Where can we gain understanding of these things? Well, there are two places. First of all, in His Word, and secondly, in nature. The Belgic Confession, which is one of the great confessions that came out of the Reformation, says in point two, quote, We know him by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible things of God, namely His power and divinity, as the Apostle says in Romans 1.20. All which things are sufficient to convince men and leave them without excuse. Secondly, He makes Himself more clearly, fully known to us by His holy and divine Word, that is to say, as far as is necessary for us to know in this life to His glory and our salvation. End quote. 
So yes, there are things that we can know about God through nature. We can know that He exists. We can know that He is powerful. We can know that He is divine. These things are all displayed in nature and can be learned in nature. It's common to all people then. So nobody can say when they stand before God one day, oh, I didn't even know that there was a God. The problem is, what man does with his knowledge of God by nature is suppress the truth about God according to Romans chapter 1. And people can do the same thing, I suppose, with with God's Word. There are plenty of unbelievers who read the Bible and suppress the truth about God. But the fact is, God reveals Himself far more clearly in Scripture. Therefore, if we want to have a right understanding, if we want to have a full understanding of who God is, we must spend time, I'd say a lot of time, in God's Word And we must come to His Word with the willingness to yield to the authority of His Word. Otherwise, what we're going to be trying to do is fit our idea of who God should be into the God that's revealed in the Scriptures. And this is important when you're dealing with fear. Because a false God or even a low view of the one true living God is not going to serve you well when you are faced with fear. A false God can only offer false hope. A false God can only offer false comfort. A low view of God can only offer you a low dose of hope and comfort when you're confronted by fear. A biblical view of God, a high view of God that sees Him as sovereign, that sees Him as all-knowing, that sees Him as all-powerful, all-wise, righteous and just, meaning He always does what is right. This is the view of God that will serve you very well when you're faced with fear or anxiety. And it's this God that's worthy of our faith, our hope our trust. And that's the reason David can say, when I'm afraid, or in the day when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Notice what he didn't say. He he didn't say, I'm going to put my trust in my money, or I'm going to put my trust in my strength. He was a mighty warrior. Uh, Or he doesn't say, "I'll, I'll put my trust in my friends. I mean, those things are all great to have, right? But they're not worthy of our, our greatest and deepest trust. Because eventually, in one way or another, they will fail you. But if you trust in God, if your supreme trust is in God, He will never fail you. And this is why He's able to ask the rhetorical question, what's mere man able to do to me. The word mere is a translator's insertion just to kind of emphasize uh, the word that this is just a mere mortal man that we're talking about. What can a, a mere mortal do to me if I'm trusting in God? See, we, we know that man is capable of doing awful things to us. We know that man is car- uh, capable of doing evil, wicked things to us. The evil that men are capable of seems to have virtually no limit But if God is sovereign, and thus He orders and ordains all things which come to pass, and if He's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise, and is thus able to do whatever needs to be done, and is capable of doing it in the best way, 
then we can find peace in knowing that man can do absolutely nothing to us that God does not allow. And they can do nothing to us if God is for us and stands against our adversaries or our source of fear, whatever it may be, whether that be man or anything else. So this is the second step. The first step, bring your problems to God. The second step begins with setting our minds on who God is and making the conscious choice to trust Him. To choice. To trust Him. I mean, this really forces us to examine ourselves, doesn't it? Do you trust God? Do you trust God enough to say, whatever comes, I'm just going to trust Him? So, I mean, do you really, really trust God? One of the reasons that we can be thankful for trials, for hard times, for afflictions, whatever they may be, is because trials and afflictions have a way of revealing either how deep or how shallow our faith really is. So we can praise God for that, because it's good for us to see. But a second reason that we can thank God for trials and afflictions is that our trials serve to actually deepen and strengthen our faith. They give us something to, in the future, look back on and say, I remember what God did for me there. Which makes it easier for you to trust Him in the future. If you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you have trusted Him for your greatest need. And that is to have a perfect substitute stand in your place before God, bearing the wrath that you deserve for your sin. That is your greatest need, hands down, bar none. If you are a Christian, you therefore believe that God has saved you from death, from, uh, or at least from the sting of death, from hell, from sin, from the devil, right? And those are the greatest things to be saved from. Now, now listen, if God can do all of those things, which we are completely incapable of doing ourselves, if God can save you from those things, can't you trust Him with the smaller things like temporal trials and afflictions that you face? If you can trust Him with your redemption, with the redemption of your soul, can you not also trust Him with your fears? And the answer is yes. Yes, you can. Yes, you should. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Philippians. He said in chapter 4, verse 19, My God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He didn't say that God will supply some of your needs. He doesn't say that that God will supply even most of your needs. That alone would be great news, wouldn't it? No, he says that God will supply all of your needs. You believe that He'll be true to His promise to save your soul. Why should you not also believe this promise as well? Especially when you're confronted with fear. There's a second aspect to David's faith in God here, and that is his confidence in God's Word. In fact, this is so central to David's remedy for fear, being faithful, trusting in God's Word, that he repeats this phrase, whose whose word I praise, three times in this psalm. Once here and twice in verse 10. James Montgomery Boyce says this. He notes, quote, This is 
very important because apart from the Word of God, we do not know what God is like. And we certainly do not know what He has promised to do for us. End quote. So David is saying that he is making that willful, conscious, deliberate choice, a decision about what he will trust, what he will lean on when he's afraid. And he chooses to trust in God. And friends, we must do the same. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Because the alternative is that we, like David, would trust in our understanding and that we would be controlled and ruled over by fear. David was refusing to let himself be manipulated or controlled by fear. Instead, he is making the choice that he will be directed, he will be governed, he will be guided, and he will be comforted by God and by God's Word, trusting in who God is. So what can mere man do? That's actually a similar question to what Paul writes in Romans 8.31. Some scholars believe that Paul was sort of paraphrasing David when Paul said, if God is for us, who is against us? The answer is nobody, even though it looks like everybody, right? What can man do? Nothing. Indeed, nothing and no one will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So now that David has made this decision, this this willful, conscientious decision, his feet are firmly planted on God and on God's Word, and so David continues to ask God for help, pleading with God for justice. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. He writes, All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth. In anger, put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. So these adversaries aren't just a physical threat. They, they, they pose a threat to David's character as well, is what we see here. They're twisting his words, he says. They're distorting his words. They, they want to harm him physically, of course, make no mistake about that, but they are apparently recruiting their fellow man also to help them by twisting his words and by slandering his character. It seems as though this was probably done, or at least likely done, for the sake of justifying their plans to do him physical harm and to even, as he notes in verse 6, take his life. But notice he says in verse 5 that his adversaries do this again all day long. In other words, his adversaries, the, the source of his fear never goes away. His adversaries, they never rest. They never take a break from the difficulties and afflictions that they've been creating for David. Isn't life often like that? Or it seems like it's just one thing after another, after another, after another, like you never have a chance to even take your breath and think. 
Life is often like that. But David responds to this not by trying to defend himself, not by trying to explain, oh, no, no, I I didn't say that. They're, They're twisting my words. He doesn't do that. Rather, he responds to that by pleading with God for justice, which is a very wise decision. Listen, if somebody is twisting your words, they don't want your explanation. So why would you try to give it to them? No, go to God for justice, which means God does the right thing. Biblically, when we talk about justice, we mean that God always does exactly what is right. He won't punish any sin too harshly, as surely as He won't punish any sin insufficiently. That's comforting, isn't it? Being all wise, He knows what punishment fits each crime exactly, and He carries forth judgment with pinpoint precision. Never too much, never too little. The twisting of words and and using words to slander, yes, that is sinful. And thus David pleads with God to be righteous and just, which is the opposite of what they're doing. He pleads with God to be righteous and just against the sins of his adversaries. He says, cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. See, David knows perfectly well and he's comforted by knowing that God is completely aware of his situation a just God knows the situation he knows it from every perspective so it's not that he sees it one way when it's really another way he never gets anything wrong he knows exactly what David's situation is he knows what David is experiencing and this brings David comfort which is why he writes Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What this simply means is, friends, God cares about the things that you suffer, the afflictions that you suffer because of other people. He he cares about the fears that we have. He cares about the fact that people have done you wrong. He cares about that. He's not just overlooking it. He's keeping record of it. He's keeping tally of it. He knows exactly what has been done against you. He's not indifferent toward your circumstances. No good father would be. God knows our pain, and He will not allow the sins that we incur, the sins that are committed against us, to go unpunished. If our enemies should die in their sins, they will answer precisely for every single thing they did to you. Or, if our enemies should find true repentance of sin and should be found in Christ Jesus, the debt of their sin will be paid by Christ. Just like ours was. So David pleads with God for two reasons. First of all, we can presume that David has examined himself and that he knows that he himself has personally acted and spoken righteously. He hasn't done anything wrong. And secondly, he knows that God is a perfect judge. That there is no evidence, that there is no testimony that escapes him or is concealed from him. He's a perfect judge. God is a perfect judge who is never, ever far away, but who is always near. In fact, near enough to hear and to notice our cries 
for help. And so we can leave our situation in His hands, knowing that however God decides to handle it, we can know, we can be confident when people sin against us, that though man may be against us, God is for us. If God is for you, what should give you fear? What should give you trouble or trepidation? If God is for you, what do you have to be anxious about? If the God who holds and keeps every single molecule in the universe in perfect and precise order at all times, and who could hold a thousand universes in the same order if he wanted to, if that God is for you, then what or whom could stand against you? Are there any words that can be both as powerful and as comforting as these in a moment when you are seized by fear? David says, this I know, that God is for me. This I know, that God is for me. Let me ask you this. How long do you think it would take you to memorize those words? Not long. That's a pretty easy sentence to, uh, to remember. It, it is important to put Scripture to memory, especially Scriptures that will serve as buffer zones, and things that give us comfort when we're afflicted. And, and here we have the easiest sentence in the world as a great clause to memorize and bury and keep deep within our hearts. This I know that God is for me. Do you know this? Do you know that God is for you? And I don't just mean knowledge, you know, brain knowledge. I'm not just talking about intellectual knowledge. I mean it in the sense that you truly believe it and that it actually makes a difference in how you see things. I mean that you trust in it enough to actually stand on it. Maybe you've spent time wondering about this, unsure if God is for you or not. And to answer that, that question, you must ask yourself if you are in Christ Jesus. Because if you have truly believed in Jesus, you must know that as surely as God is pleased with Christ, He's also pleased with you. Is God for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course He is. And if God is for Him, and you're in Him, how could He not also be for you? But friends, if you are not in Christ, if you are outside of Christ, if you have refused to trust in Christ with a self-yielding trust, the bad news is that no, God is not for you. And you can't truly and rightly say what David says here. In fact, you stand in the same position as David's adversaries. The day of your judgment is coming for you, and there is nowhere you can hide from it. There is no way for you to run away from it. But you must know this, that God has provided a shelter for the storm of judgment that will rain down on you. And that shelter, that refuge is Jesus Christ. You will not be able to hide. You will not be able to take refuge in your own good works. 
or anything else of your own doing. Only God Himself can shelter you from His wrath. And that's exactly why He sent Jesus Christ. On Him almighty justice fell, which would have sunk this world to hell. He bore it for a sinful race to make Himself our hiding place. In Christ, you can know with certainty that God is never, ever, ever against you, but that every second, indeed every nanosecond of every day, He is for you. He is as for you as He is for His own Son. So knowing that God is for him, David's able to end this psalm by repeating the chorus what really serves as the chorus for this this song, and resting in God's promises. Let's finish it up with verses 10 to 13. He said, he ended verse 9 with, This I know that God is for me. He continues in verse 10, In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Now in the first section of the psalm, we saw David pleading with God to be gracious to him, to be merciful to him, because he was being trampled relentlessly by his enemies, by his adversaries, the people of Gath, David's response was to turn his attention, his focus to God, and to trust in God and in His Word, which was like putting a nail in the tire of his fears. They just went away. They deflated instantly. But now he adds something. First, if you look back, first he says, in God whose word I praise, which repeats what he said back in verse 4, right? We've seen that. But this time he adds something else. He adds, in the Lord whose word I praise. You see, when we see the word Lord in our Bibles in all capital letters, it means that the word that's there is actually God's name, Yahweh. That is his covenant name. It reminds David of God's covenant promises. And so David started out the psalm by by pleading for help on the basis of God's mercy, but now as he uses the name Yahweh, he's pleading for help on the basis of God's covenantal faithfulness to his people, to his promises. And so David asks the rhetorical question once again, what can man do to me? And the answer the second time is the same as it was the first time. Nothing. Man can't do anything to me. If God is for me, who can stand against me? If God is for us, then man can do nothing that God doesn't allow. And we can know that He won't allow anything to happen to us that does not deepen our faith and does not grow us in the likeness of Christ. Indeed, Romans 8.28 tells us that God is causing all things including our fears, God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. That good being our growth in Christ's likeness. Every circumstance we face is being used. None of our circumstances, none of our fearful 
or anxious situations are for naught. They're all being used by God for our good. Only an all-powerful God, an all-knowing God, an all-wise God, and a God who's filled with love and compassion for His people can make that kind of promise. Not only is God all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and perfectly just, but He loves His children with a covenant love. Do you see how dwelling on these attributes of God and meditating on the promises of God has a way of breaking, disabling the power of fear in our lives? What if we spent more time in God's Word than we did reading headlines every day that are written and designed with the purpose of causing us to feel a sense of fear and trepidation? As David concludes, you can see that his entire attitude is changed. His entire disposition has changed. He's not fearful anymore. Instead, what we see is that he's actually filled with confidence. And he's content, even though he's got all these adversaries who are trying to make his life difficult. Indeed, trying to take his life. He's so certain that God will be faithful to deliver him that he vows to present an offer of uh, an offering of thanksgiving to God when his situation is resolved it, it, it's as good as done he's saying this is i'm going to give it to you when i'm able now as we've seen in so many of the psalms that were written in a state of affliction or distress and so many of the psalms were written in a state of affliction or distress what we see once again is that God hasn't taken action to change David's situation at all yet The only thing that has changed is that David has gone to the Lord and he has cast his cares on the Lord, which has changed David's disposition. And so David is now praising God while the storm is still raging. When David fled from Saul by going into Gath, he hadn't been king yet. He hadn't sat on the throne of Israel just yet. And yet he knew that God had promised that he would make David the king of Israel. David knew that if he died, if he was killed there in Gath, that God's promise to him would fail. And since it's impossible for God's promises to fail, how many of you guys know that? That it's impossible for God's promises to fail. And since it's impossible for God's promises to fail, he knew that he wouldn't die there. He knew that God would somehow come through and save his life in some way so that he would be king of Israel just like God had promised. Now, what we need to realize is that we don't have a promise that compares to what David was promised by God. Right? We don't have the promise that, that God will save us from death or that he'll exalt us to this or that position here on earth. But we do have even better promises than that. We have the promise that God is causing all things to work together for our good and for His glory. We have the promise that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus, not even death. We have the promise that when we are absent from this body, that is when we die, we will be in the presence of the Lord. Or how about this one? How about the promise that He will never leave us or forsake us, that He will indeed be with us until the very end? What about those promises? Those promises are all good. 
Those promises, the, the funds are in the bank. You can cash the check. The funds are there. And now, God, we need to understand that God might remove the source of our fears or troubles, or He might not. He's the one who's all-wise. He's the one that's all-knowing and all-powerful. He knows what's best for us. We, we might think that we know what's best for us, that it would be best for us if this or that trial or this or that source of fear would just be removed from our lives. God knows things that we don't know. But we need to understand that He always wants what is best for us. He knows what is best for us, and He wants what is best for us. And in fact, He is working out what is best for us in all of our circumstances, and so He ordains what is best for us. So whether He removes the source of our fear, or whether the source of our fear stays in place. What we need to understand, what we need to have a confident and unshakable trust in, is that we can be as sure of God's faithfulness to keep all these promises in the New Testament, and there are hundreds of them. We can be as certain of God's faithfulness to keep these promises as David was about God's faithfulness to keep his promise unto David. All these promises we obtain in the new covenant are sure to pass. God will not, and indeed God cannot, fail to bring every promise He makes to pass. All of them. Every single one. In fact, it is impossible for God's promises to fail because His very character, His very nature requires that all of His promises come to pass. As surely as it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for His promises to ever fail. There's one final point from this psalm that needs to be made here. David says that God has delivered his soul from death and his feet from stumbling, which means that he has allowed or he has enabled David's escape, uh, which we do read about in the following chapter in 1 Samuel 22. But David follows these things up. That God has delivered his soul from death and his feet from stumbling by saying this. He says, so that... In other words, there's a reason that God has saved him. God has saved David in order that David may do something. What is that? He says, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. You have been saved for a reason, friends. If you are in Christ, you have been saved for the purpose of glorifying God. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Ephesians 2.10 We are saved to walk in the light. What's interesting to see here is that this final verse can also be translated to say the light of life instead of the light of the living. It can also say the light of life. And thus Jesus seems to have quoted this line from Psalm 56 when he said in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, whatever causes your fear, whenever you're finding yourself fearful, we must learn to set our minds on what we know about God, his attributes, what he's done, what he's promised to do 
set our minds on what we know about God and set our minds on the promises that he makes to us in Christ Jesus. Meditating on God's attributes and praying God's promises has a way of breaking the power of fear in our lives. If you want to share David's confidence, if you want to have the same peace of mind toward your fears that David had, then you must believe in Jesus. You must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Him. Only when you've done that can you truly and rightly say that God is for you. And only then can you truly and rightly say, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that Your Word equips us for every good work. How it instills in us the very confidence that David had when he was confronted by perilous situations. Oh Lord, You know our hearts. You know our circumstances. You know our fears. You know the things that we feel anxious about. We pray that by the power of Your Spirit working in us, that we will focus on You and not the size of our problems, and that we would find our peace and comfort and confidence and contentedness in life, not in our circumstances, but in You, who You are, and what You have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.